Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Cody, we are on the brink of the NBA Finals. Both series are on the brink. As of recording this, the Celtics are up 3-2 to two in a series that I think has been going on for five or six months. And the uh, Warriors are up 3-1 on the Mavs. How, how are you feeling right now? Honestly, Ben, let's just let's start the finals now. Let's just call it. Let's just move on. I think we'll all be better after that. That's that's how I'm feeling, especially with that Heat Celtics series. I agree with you. I'm just like, man, can can we just end this now, please, please? I, I, I've been uh, I've been deep in scouting and video analysis. If you haven't checked it out, you're a Patreon subscriber, Patreon.com. Thinking Basketball. We've got uh, a Rob Williams two way sort of video in this series. Up on Patreon and then on YouTube, we have sort of how the Celtics have adapted their offense to that incredible heat ball hawking pressure that in Miami's two wins, you know, you know, no big deal, Cody, 19 steals in a game, um, no big deal. So I, I've been in that mode, which is to say I have no idea what anyone else is saying about these conference finals for the last few days. I imagine some people must be asking how are we playing every other day and will the players ever get rest? Cause the heat and the Celtics, especially like in the first quarter last night, they were, they looked so exhausted. I was tired just watching them. Uh, have you heard anything about this? No, but I wanted, I wanted to ask you about this because I don't recall seeing two teams being this exhausted during the playoffs. Like you're watching it. And like you said, like you're feeling tired. Like there's a couple possessions, like Jimmy Butler gets wide open and it's just like, it feels like he's like, I guess I'll shoot this up now. Like you can feel the breath and I breathe with him and we're all just collectively breathing together. It's like, I think we all just need to like take an extra day off. Everyone get away from basketball, especially the heat, get away from basketball, get away from a hoop, far away from a hoop and figure out whatever's going on there. Do you think Jimmy has the energy to shoot a jump shot? Like, what do you what do you think is happening? Because I've heard people talk about his knee, um, obviously missed part of what was that their win in game three, uh, missed the second half with his knee. So, so something is going on with his knee that doesn't make him 100 percent. A lot of players aren't 100 percent at this time of year, especially in this series, which is the weirdness of this series where guys constantly coming in and out of the lineup. But the one thing I will say is you've got fatigue, you've got a potential injury. But then, in addition to that, Butler's just not a good outside shooter. And so what Boston has done is they've completely changed their defensive tactics on him in the last few games as the series have un- has unfolded. They go under his screens in like an extreme way. Um, I think the 1-3 he hit the other night in Miami was a set shot where he made a phone call before he, he like called, the, he like pulled the audience. He's like, should I shoot this shot? I'm so wide open. So it's all these things happening um, in addition to the fact that Boston has completely changed the way they play him. And, you know, with all that stuff happening and Hero out of the lineup, it just feels like Miami just does not have anything close to the proper amount of offense to compete in the series. And that's the thing. We're talking about Jimmy right now, but I think there's a lot of different factors going on. Jimmy's definitely not the only one that seems a little injured. Like Lowry last game, like... Man, that that looked rough. And even on the Celtics side, we'll get to them a little bit later. Uh, But you're describing him shooting. There's one play during that pitiful third quarter 
uh, pitiful third pitiful. quarter. Pitiful. Just a, it, that included a couple of, of air balls from Oladipo, like on the same possession. But then later on in that quarter, there was a play when Butler had the ball. I don't remember who was guarding him. I don't. I wiped a lot of that game from my mind, a lot of that second half. And the guy that was guarding Butler just kind of like fell at some point. And Butler just had like so much, like literally has never had more space on a three-point shot. And you could see it in his eyes. He's like, yeah, I, I guess I'm wide enough open to shoot this. And he airballed it. And I don't I don't know what's going on. I don't know if they're collectively in their heads. I don't know if uh, Hero being out is affecting them that much. I know we talked about at the beginning of the series, like what their theoretical number of playmakers is. But without Hero, like what does that drop down to? And especially with, with Butler in his current state, like are they at like a... 0.75 total like seriously do they have like a collective singular strong playmaker on their team at the moment no last night was i think 0.75 is a high number uh if you missed what we're talking <laughs> about a few episodes we were trying to calculate the number of actual legitimate playoff playmakers from team to team in the final four and with the heat we couldn't figure out whether to give full credit to like bam or what the status of Kyle Lowry was or Tyler Hero coming off the bench. So we had like one in three court. It 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 was close to zero last night. Um yeah. Any any other thoughts on on this series? Let's see. So I'm I actually just pulled up YouTube because uh I didn't get a chance to watch your YouTube video. Now oh, just are you decide- gonna are you gonna watch it now no, during the I, show? <laughs> I wanted to see what the title was. I wanted to see what the title was to ask you. So it's titled How the Celtics Solved Miami's Suffocating Defense. Do you want to talk about this at all? Me not having watched this at all. Can you do you want to give me a little recap or do you want to save it all for the people that are gonna go and watch the video? I, I think the video stands alone mostly. Um the one thing I will say that sort of surprised me is we we were scouting um Mike Delarosa, our our video coordinator and I were scouting both sides of the ball. And so yesterday's video is is more about the Celtics defense. There's some other stuff we could get into, as I mentioned, the Celtics going under on Butler pick and rolls. Another big defensive adjustment from them was after game three, they just started dropping just about every pick and roll with Bam Adebayo. So in game three they were up at the level a lot. That freed Bam to roll to the basket. He had a ton of rolling possessions. But you bring Rob Williams back, which is what that video was about yesterday. You switch to a drop. Um, those things have helped. What surprised me, as I said, was on the flip side, I'm looking at the Boston offense and how they're trying to alleviate all this pressure that Miami's defense has put on them, specifically the inability for Brown and Tatum to really dribble in tight spaces and kind of the the give and take of the decisions you have to make on the fly with all these defenders with good hands stunting at you. Uh, it's really kind of awesome stuff that it's hard to get into in nine minutes other than just presenting it on the screen. But it's fascinating to think about help defenders sliding into a driving gap and then basically playing like a game of chicken where they're like, I might stun at the ball, but I might recover to the pass. Butler, of course, is a master of this. Just like, no, I'm, I'm slid over. on you. No, I'm on the pass. Um, I really wanted you to make that pass. And then sometimes they're driving toward that help. And of course, the help plays the pass. And so you have to keep it. it, it it's a whole thing. Anyway, all of that was to say, um, Boston's offensive process to me as the series has, has progressed, especially the last couple of games, has been much, much better at putting their players in a position to succeed. But the irony is they're getting better looks, it seems like, 
but they're missing them. So in the first couple of games of the series, games one through three, the Celtics shot 41% on open or wide open threes, hmm. according to NBA.com, the second spectrum tracking. In the last two games of the series, games four and five, they've shot 29% on those shots. About the same number of shots overall, but in the last couple of games, they've actually had more wide open shots by a pretty significant degree compared to the... So you've had open and wide open getting better looks, getting more wide open looks, but they're like seven of 25 on the wide open looks in game four and five. So it's this weird thing where as the Celtics have gotten healthier, Marcus Smart is out there, Al Horford is out there. We talked about their extra passing and their decision-making and you look at the games and it feels rough and you look at the scores and even the overall efficiencies in the series and they don't feel that strong. And then you zoom down the, you know, like, oh, well, Al Horford's played four games. What's his on-court offensive rating in the series? If you had to guess, what would you think Al Horford's on-court offensive rating is in the series? Oh, wow. Is it, uh, can I just give you a range? Like, is it over 110? Is it like 120? It is 120. Hey, Cody. Yeah. And smart, I think, is 121. So it's actually been the case that when they've had these guys on the court, they've been able to have, I mean, that's solid offense, but against the Miami defense, that is one of the best defenses in the league. Um, Number one, one of the best defenses in the league. Number two, had two really good playoff rounds. The first round where they just basically, you know, sent Trey Young into outer space uh, with what they did to him. And then number three, you have you know, the personnel that Miami specifically has with all these guys with quick hands um, against the Celtics, who uh, we talked about it uh, on one of the recent shows. It's weird to be in the Eastern Conference Finals and be like, well, dribbling is a thing, but the Heat made it a thing. And yet the Celtics have actually still had a pretty successful offensive series. And I think they've gotten better. The kind of the dam has broken is what it feels like by the time we got to game five last night. Yeah, when when you're talking about Miami's defense, something that has really impressed me and it stood out specifically when Spolstra went with Tucker at the five lineup when they were they were a lot smaller. They really didn't have the rim protection because I've talked about it before. Jimmy Butler's a great defensive player, but he's not a classic slide down, protect the rim kind of guy. And when when Tucker was in and Bam's very good at this, too, they are so good at using their hands out in the perimeter. And it almost feels like a level of rim protection where it's like to actually get to the rim, you're going to have to get through these hands like we are going to strip the ball we are going to make it difficult to make these passes but at the end of the day if you can break through that like the rim is open you're able to make some other kinds of passes so that is one thing that i was impressed with with uh miami from what i saw but clearly it didn't 100 percent hold up i think a key that really stood out to me too uh jason tatum it really seemed like his passing was pretty on the mark yesterday, which is really interesting. I don't even know if yesterday, two days ago, whenever this is coming out, but I I felt that ever since Tatum's shoulder injury, I don't know if you think I'm wrong on this, but it feels like his jumper has been off with that. Uh, He hasn't been accurate like at all since, you know, his arm went limp and we all thought that it was dislocated and he was done, but I thought his passing, like he was whipping it around, throwing some nice cross-court passes, and I thought that opened up a lot for the Celtics, especially with a team that... um, doesn't necessarily have a lot of strong creators when Jalen Brown uh, is is somebody that's struggling to not turn the ball over as much as throw assists. I, I just want to represent for all um, the shoulder dislocated brethren out there as someone with over 30 dislocations on my record. 
we knew that that was not a shoulder dislocation because the level of pain was completely inappropriate for a complete shoulder dislocation. Um, 30? I think he, oh, yeah. We, 30. We haven't, we've never talked about this. I don't think you've said 30. You've never given me a number. Yeah, I've done both shoulders, and one of them is, is chronic. Um, anyway, I think that was some sort of cervical neck like nerve thing that's been going on. It it seems like it might be affecting his shot. It's hard to say in the small samples and with streaky shooters. I mean, you mentioned Kyle Lowry, and it's like on one hand, he missed most of his jumpers, it felt like, yesterday. But then Kyle Lowry is is a streaky shooter historically. Some playoff games, he's coming out and canning seven or eight threes, and other playoff games, he it's the same like diet of shots, but... It just doesn't feel like he can throw it in the ocean. Um, so that's been very hard to kind of disentangle everything that's been going on in this series. Anyway, what, what were we talking about before we got to, oh, the passing, your your point about Tatum's passing, right? I, I think this is also covered in the video. I think this is one of those correlation things where the Boston offense has made it easier for him to make certain reads versus playing that game of chicken I was talking about earlier where he constantly has to figure out, my God, what is Jimmy Butler going to do when he's helping off the corner? Because they've basically, as, as you'll see when you watch the video, Cody, they have basically eliminated that option for him. And I think having Rob, and this, this is something that Mike broke down in your Patreon video, and shout out to Mike. Mike is just, just brilliant with his, his film breakdowns. But I think that added level of uh, what Rob brings on defense, number one, like if you make a top five list of like the best closeout defenders in the league, like I don't know if we've talked about this on, on the show, but dear God, like Rob is, has to be either the top of the list or like top three at this point. Like if, you, if you're taking a jump shot and Robert Williams is looking at you on the court, like <laughs> you're in trouble because he seems to get uh, those blocks like every other game or something like that. But along with that on offense, I think he he adds an added layer of needing to keep an eye on him in the paint. Like Al Horford is great and all, but he's not going to be catching a lob above the square. He's not going to bring that vertical sort of spacing. And so I think having him out there just brings an extra level of stress against Miami's defense that uh, makes it a lot more difficult to to respond to. And I always I thought that, uh, like you were saying, I think the Rob minutes have been been really good, and I think they've been pretty challenging for for Bam Adebayo specifically. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, and Eric Spolstra pulled out the micro ball lineup last night in game five where there's no backup center when Bam goes to the bench. Basically, I mean, who's the big, I guess, P.J. Tucker? Yeah, I think it's P.J. Tucker. Is is technically the big, but that, come on, that's the spirit of micro ball. We're basically out of big men at that point. And one thing that happens when you go to micro ball is the rebounding changes. Um, You just don't have size. And you're usually trying to create more offensive punch with your lineups when you do that. And even if you're not entirely going like pure offense, I would argue that some of the Warriors, the death lineup configurations in the past aren't just pure offense where you have Draymond and Iguodala and even Harrison Barnes out there with the Splash Brothers. So even if you're not pure offense, 
you're you're defensively looking for like speed, horizontal rotations, uh, being able to extend and recover. And when you're in rotation or when you're in a position like that, it doesn't always give you an opportunity to get on the glass very easily. Uh, if you're in one of those lineups and you go zone, it doesn't give you an opportunity to get on the glass very easily. And then um, we should probably talk more about rebounding today just in general because one of the things that always throws me when I'm watching a game is when the the color commentator, especially a former coach, is just like, they need to do a better job on the glass because they're being out-rebounded. Usually in today's game, Cody, you're being out-rebounded because of all these other things, because of the lineup, because of the defensive breakdowns, because of the configuration of what happened earlier in their in the possession. It's not just you've got some terrible big man rebounder or your team doesn't provide any effort on the glass. It's that you're making a strategic trade-off. And part of that strategic trade-off is your rebounding is going to be hurt. So I think this was an episode, you may have even released it like in 2020, like yep. a couple of years ago. It's been a while since I listened to it, but uh, you, you were talking about the value of rebounding in there. And I feel like this is a conversation that always bubbles up just because rebounding is so elusive to talk about. Like when you watch a game, like Bam, first of all, Bam had that beautiful putback dunk uh, in in their last game. And you see a play like that, or you see the other kind of hustle plays. I think PJ Tucker just kind of like squeezed himself in there, grabbed one, was able to put one in. And it's, it's an easy way to kind of get some extra points, especially if you're stagnating and struggling on... Um, when you're struggling on offense. And so like the question always comes up, like how valuable is rebounding? Like Ben, this might be too broad of a question, but how much should teams care about rebounding? And maybe, maybe this is actually a better question. In what way should teams care about rebounding? Well, I don't want to rehash. I I think what was discussed in that rebounding episode a couple years ago is still fresh and relevant. Um, so I don't want to entirely rehash sort of the the team schematics of like making the decision to crash the boards versus not crashing the boards. I think this comes up in two big areas. One is individually assessing rebounding. Like I think Stan Van Gundy, who I really like on the broadcast, just has such great eyes for things and a ton of great coaching insights. But usually just based on looking at the stat sheet, coaches will obsess over rebounds at the team level. And then even individually, when we judge players, so what he said the other night was like, Luka Doncic is an elite defensive rebounder. And then like two possessions later, you could see Luka against an actual better defensive rebounder. Um, I think it was Looney just have no, like no ability to get in front of the ball, no ability to get up to the apex. So there, there are skills with individual rebounding, nose for the ball, anticipation, strength, um, just desire athleticism to get way up and I think that skills those skills create a distribution of talent for rebounders some guys aren't going to get a lot of rebounds when the ball doesn't bounce right to them others like Brandon Clark are going to go do a Dennis Rodman impression and just hunt that baby down because you want it you're quick to the ball you're quick to the react quick to react he's got great first and second bounce um, does Clark in in Memphis and so I do think you get that to your question about how valuable is it these days, I don't think the spread of rebounding value is really that important anymore because of all the space, because of uh, sort of the geometry of the floor, where it's not like the 1980s. You're not in there wrestling for position every possession. Instead, what's happening is 
a couple guys at most might have a shot at a rebound on a possession. And a lot of times strategically, you're just not sent you're just not even sending anyone to care. You might have a corner crash that's part of a cut at the end of the play or something like that. But I just don't think individually it's a huge thing anymore. I was poking around a little bit to try and dig a little bit deeper into this rebounding question, especially on the individual le- level, just because I think individual stats and team stats are always so interesting to compare. And uh, I came across a, a regularized adjusted rebound rate. Um, I forgot the size. shot charts, I think NBA shot charts or something yep. like that. Ryan and Davis puts that out. Yeah. So like really on the basic level, this doesn't really look at the box score for an individual player. It's like looking at the on off data, regularizing it and seeing like how a certain player changes the team's performance for specific rebounds. And so this is looking only at defensive rebounds. And I was looking at the top five players from the last three years. And without reading off the numbers, uh, the top one is like 3.08 and number five is like 2.5, just to give you a range here. What um, what what does that mean, 3.08? So like if you were a three, from my understanding, that's like by this stat, when you're on the court, you're basically like a plus three for your team on three defensive three rebounds. Three percent though. Three percent, yes, for defensive rebound percentage. percentage. Right, so, yeah. your team, so your team defensive rebounding rate might be like 74% with you on the bench. And then if you're in the game and you're a really good defensive rebounder, it's like 77%. Yes. Thank you okay. for, for saving me on that correction. Um, so the top five I had were uh, Nurkic, Kawhi, Boban, Sabonis, and Mike Scott. Okay. And obviously Kawhi missed a year, so he wasn't included with this most recent year. But I'm looking at that and I'm like, how valuable is this though? Like I'm looking at these numbers I'm seeing these players. I understand that based off the stat that they might be changing their teams a lot more than any other individuals. But I'm like, do we like how much do we care? Because theoretically, Ben, here, here's the weird thing I was thinking about. Theoretically, like you could also ask the question, like uh, how much is an individual scorer affecting a team's offensive rating? Like if you just looked at the scoring of a single player. But at the end of the day, you need to have a better offensive rating to win. You cannot win a basketball game with an offensive rating of zero. It's literally impossible. However, there is, bringing it back again, there's a possible world where a team could win a game with a defensive rebound rate of 0%. Like somehow if every shot bounces out of bounds and auto- and just gives you possession the next time, you could down and score and win. You can have a 0% defensive rebounding rate. And I think having a stat that that's that so that anomaly could happen is so weird that I'm like, I don't know how you judge quite how valuable it is, A, for any of these individual players, and B, to consider at the team level. So that's where I'm at right now. I, I, don't, I don't know if I would go to the extreme, though, because, I mean, you can... You can win a game with zero steals, but if you have 20 steals in a game, that's that's going to be pretty valuable. Um, I, I think the more concerning stuff about the data that you just presented is plus 2% or plus 3% for the absolute best rebounder in the league just doesn't seem like it's moving the needle that much, which makes sense because how would individual players be in a position to move the needle? Let's go back to Luca. He gets a lot of defensive rebounds because the Mavs like to keep him low defensively they don't want him out on the perimeter it's the same thing with James Harden it's one of the reasons why the whole triple double thing well maybe making more sense 30 40 50 years ago as a kind of proxy of all-around impact is just beyond silly at this point because a lot of these triple doubles are from guys 
getting rebounds by being close to the basket with no one else around because their team is trying to keep them near the paint and near the rim. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm not sure um, how valuable this data suggests that rebounding is today. Do you have something more to add? I want to, I want to move on. Yeah. So what I was going to say is I think, and, and you touched on it there and I just want to emphasize that in the way that, the amount that teams don't necessarily go for the offensive rebound so much, there's like a pretty easy floor to hit with defensive rebounds. Like you could put pretty minimal effort and I don't know what the floor would be, but it wouldn't be 0%, right? Like if players just kind of stood near the basket after every shot, they would still end up with a defensive rebound percentage of what, like 30%, 40%? No, it, it would be higher. You it think would it higher. would even be higher than that? Yeah. That, even, that even proves the point more. No, if you look at if you look at small ball lineups and micro ball lineups, um, at least I did this when I did the Houston Rockets video when they were playing Covington and Westbrook and that whole lineup a couple of years ago. They were they're still in like sixty five seventy percent. You're you're just not going to get too far away because the possession starts with the defenders in between the basket and the offensive players. So when the ball ricochets off, um, they're more likely to get the rebound. They're more likely to be in a position to get the rebound regardless of rebounding skills. I mean, these are all NBA athletes. It's not like you and I are out there trying to trying to move around um, and get the rebound. Ricochets, by the way, the, the, the sort of variability in misses with the ball coming off the rim, that's another part of our shot quality conversation that we were having last week where luck, when we talk about luck or variance within a game, one of the big factors is where the rebounds go sometime. It may only be five or ten possessions in a game, but that's five or ten possessions that swing from one team to the other team. I think in last night's game, game five between the Celtics and the Heat, I think the Heat shot under 40% true shooting. (laughs) But between like turnovers and rebounding, um, we should probably look this up to double check, but it jumped out to me. I think they had something like 21 more true shot attempts, right? And I don't think anyone watched that game and and said uh, Miami crushed the Celtics on the glass. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was other stuff. But the point is to be able to generate sometimes 5, 10, 15 extra shots in a game is really helpful. But sometimes it's just it's just the bounce of the ball. It's just it's just these long threes coming off or um, a weird nick off the rim or something like that. There are possessions where you get a putback that you normally wouldn't get 95% of the time because the ball like flies off the rim, hits the backboard, goes quickly over the head of the guy who's in position to easily get the rebound, lands in your hands, and you get a layup. We talked about this with Bobby Portis on that play in the celtics Buck series, that crazy Game 5 play off the rebound. So all of this, I think, connects also to... Co- Cody, do you have your conference finals ballot filled out yet? Oh yeah, are you I, ready for the MVP of the of the conference finals discussion? Does uh, does shot quality factor into this? Well, I I, I don't know. It can. I mean, there, I, I don't think there's been any rules set up. But for you, I mean, like, are you are you factoring in the shot quality conversation? I have talked about this in the past when I've put out um, content on analyzing specific series. I think there's a balance to be had between a results-oriented approach only, and understanding, like, movement, gravity, decision-making, passing. Like, Luka Doncic constantly getting 
good shooters, wide open threes. It shouldn't matter that they miss those threes if they normally make them. Now, not all shot creation is created equally. If you keep getting, um, I don't know, let's say Maxi Kleba semi-contested threes from above the break, or you, you keep setting up someone in a, in a spot that isn't necessarily his sweet spot or his comfort zone, you keep getting Dwight Powell wide open 15-footers. That doesn't do much for me. But as long as you're setting up your guys and getting them good looks, uh, that has a lot of value. I don't think it should matter, at least to me, that your teammates miss those shots. You have a very curious smile on your face right now. What, what, what are you thinking? I was just about to say, I don't know if anyone's watching this, anyone seeing me trying to contain my laughter, but when you start this segment off, when you start this conversation, like, well, when you have one player that's setting up players with wide open shots, and then you have the other side with just movement, scoring, and gravity, to me, I'm just like, wow, this is the all-star game, and T-Mac is just throwing the ball off the glass to himself. Like, you are setting yourself beautifully for this alley-oop. Ben, can I assume, can I assume, can I assume that you have Stephen Curry above Luka Doncic in this conversation? For who I think has been the best player in the Western Conference? Yeah. Finals? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Um, It got a little closer after game four, but I certainly think through the first three games, it was pretty clearly Steph Curry. Um, Now, maybe this is a worthwhile discussion to get into just to illustrate some of these points. Because... The first part to me, and it doesn't just apply to Steph, it applies also a little bit to Jordan Poole, it applies a little bit to Clay Thompson, is when you see someone like Kevon Looney, when you see Andrew Wiggins get this sort of hype, they have a big game, they have big numbers, they have big rebounding numbers, and I would describe Looney as a good rebounder. He uses his body really well, uh, and he has soft hands when he gets near the ball, sort of in the paint. And as I've said before, he's a little he's a little bit more agile than you think based on based on how he's built. But when you see that over and over again, that's the result oftentimes of stars earlier in the possession, primary creators earlier in the possession, gutting the defense, putting the defense into rotation, making them move around. And now all of a sudden, nobody can put a body on you. Now all of a sudden, help is going into the lane or you have a help the helper situation. And you can come from the weak side like Looney and pick up extra rebound after extra rebound after extra rebound. If no one's there, you get putbacks. These guys are play finishers as it is. So I, I feel like I've talked about this before. I can't remember anymore. The Cedric Maxwell corollary where Cedric Maxwell was given the NBA Finals MVP in 1981 and he had this huge scoring series and Larry Bird did not have a huge scoring series and that was because Larry Bird spent the whole series setting up Cedric Maxwell to score and they gave the MVP to Maxwell and I think this just comes up over and over again where unless there's something extremely compelling I'm always going to side with the offensive creator who makes that possibility who makes those shots possible for a play finisher versus the play finisher. So Andrew Wiggins in this series, he has a nice game. Um, a lot of times that's from the other guys in the offense setting him up to be the finisher at the end of the connective chain of events versus if you took Steph and you took Clay and you took Poole off the court, it would look very different for someone like Andrew Wiggins within the series. 
And that that almost sounds like that's that's why you're close between the two, because both Luca and Curry are so good at setting up the play finishers on their team. And I think when you were talking about rebounding and Looney for a second, when I when I thought about putting teams in a rotation, I thought that was a standout part about how the Mavericks were attacking the Warriors as I thought they were doing a better job. The, the Bullocks, the Dorian Finney-Smiths were doing better at using that space to drive into the lane and get some shots that way more. Jalen Brunson obviously has been doing a great job of it, but I thought I saw more of it from from more of their stationary shooters. Uh, going back to Looney, though, something that's really stood out for me and what he's been doing to take advantage of some of the space is a short roll passing. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I felt like he's been absorbing some of Draymond Green's short roll passing abilities. And and I think that helps to stir the drink a little bit because it's like, oh, we actually have two guys now because the Mavs have been doubling Curry. Like even without a ball screen, there's been like a threat of a ball screen and they'll send two to him. And now they have two guys that are fairly effective here in this four on three situation and creating for these other guys. But uh, there's one play that just like, really stood out and showing to me how good Curry is off ball. Like Curry, A, just in constant motion. We don't need to rehash that anymore. But there's a play in game four too where Luca. Luca had a play where he passed it and immediately cut, got the ball and finished at the basket. But the speed at which he did it, in comparison to what I've been seeing from Curry is I'm like, wow, there is just a gap between what Curry does without the ball, passing and moving, than pretty much anyone else in the league. Uh, completely agree on Looney. I had a little note on one of his short roll passes. I was like, oh my goodness, he's learning from Draymond. Um, <laughs> and this is a pretty awesome step for Looney. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, just as an aside, as you talk through this, you're reminding me how weird it is at this point to constantly receive messages about like, oh, Ben, you're incredibly biased when you say Stephen Curry is good at basketball. I'm like, I, I just, <laughs> I don't understand it anymore. Um, and, and it's, it's like pretty ubiquitous. Most, I mean, we've talked about it with, with the MVP voting this year. We talked about it with, uh, the all NBA voting and his, his standing on that. It, it's definitely the kind of thing where I think at this point, my only explanation, because a lot of smart basketball people, a lot of thoughtful basketball people, a lot of guys who know a lot about the game, watch the game, they they still seem to undersell it or take it for granted relative to you know what I see out there. And the, I think the simplest explanation is he just does it differently. This just moving around and not and not being a six seven guy who makes jumpers in your face and dunks the ball and things like that it doesn't have the same resonance. And so people are willing to accept that Curry is, is one of the great players. But when you literally are like, Oh, um, he's an all timer or, Oh, 
uh, his offensive peak season might be the best season in NBA history. It, it causes them to genuflect a little bit. I will put some color on it for this series. In my box plus minus model, he is the best player in the conference finals by a pretty decent amount. Um, Luca's actually moved into third, but even just sometimes with Curry, his scoring numbers, people can't like process his scoring numbers. He's 28 points per 75 on plus 7% true shooting in this series. I mean, this is pretty close to gold standard stuff. Not quite as good as what we've seen earlier in his career at his peak. But again, you know, if you're like near a 30 point per game scorer, and these days you're whatever that comes out to 62, 63% true shooting, there just aren't many guys in the world who are ever going to do it better. Compare that to Luca. Luca has been a volume machine his entire short postseason career. And again, this series, 33 points per 75 on plus 3% true shooting. Is the extra volume worth the, the drop-off in efficiency? We won't try to answer that right now. The only point I'm making is it's a consistent pattern over and over again where, again, if you look at Golden State, 124 offensive rating with Curry on the court. That's plus basically plus 12 net rating with Curry on the court. In this series, when he goes to the bench, the Mavs are outscoring the Warriors. When Luka's on the court, they're being outscored by about 16 points per 100 possessions. When he goes to the bench, the Mavs actually outscore the Warriors. These are all small sampled things and whatnot, and the Mavs only have a 108 offensive rating with Luka on the floor. But again, I think that offensive rating is suppressed by them missing some wide open threes that they would make. Who's the one creating the wide open threes? It's Luka Doncic. So he's he's also had a very good series offensively. Last thing I'll say about this, each team is attacking the other star. So the Mavs are attacking Curry on defense. Uh, the Warriors are attacking Luka on defense. I would say at this point, Curry is not only a better defensive player than Luka Doncic, but I think he has held up much better in this series compared to Luka, where there have been times where um, Golden State has really, really had success against him. And, and, you know, that's not too damning for Luka because Golden State just keeps doing this to defenders and that motion and their style of play is extremely hard to guard. I'm glad you brought up the attacking part of it because I... I think it was at the beginning of game four, they really went out like I think three of maybe even their first three possessions. It was like a one on one for Jalen Brunson versus versus Steph Curry. And like you said, I thought Curry held up really well. I think Brunson got him in the post once on a shot. But other than that, there was never a time where I'm like, oh, Curry's getting toasted. And that defense to me is a big separator in determining who is the best player in the in the Western Conference Finals right now, because I think Luka feels like a negative on defense at the moment during this series. He feels like a negative. He's letting players into the paint a little bit more speaking of getting into the paint though and you were talking about Steph Curry's uh efficiency and maybe not being as good as it used to be I I don't know because I don't have his 2016 2017 seasons just at the top of mind besides the shooting but this is some of the most crisp driving that I can remember Steph Curry having like his handle is tight like he is just dancing around players and it feels like he's able to get into the paint 
pretty much at will, like not just off cuts, not just off movement, but when he catches and decides to make a movement, even if it requires a little bit of isolation, like this is some of the most I can remember doing that. So if you have those stats pulled up right now, Ben, uh, what is what is Curry's box creation during this series right now? Because I feel like it's got to be pretty high for what we're used to seeing from Curry, because I, I feel like he's stirring the drink a little bit more than I'm even used to seeing. Well, it's just an estimate, and the estimate is about 12 shots created for teammates per 100, which is a little bit higher than some of his peak playoff numbers from those years. He was always very high, though. He ranks kind of top 10 in this stat, usually around like 10 or 11 shots created per 100 for his teammates. He's at 12.2 in this series after four games. Again, that's just an estimate. And to put that in perspective, Luka leads all players in the conference finals at 13 shots per 100. So the thing I'll say without, um, you know, doing a full breakdown is that I think everything you're describing is just tempo, is just pace, is sort of understanding the tricks of the trade, where he's not as quick as he used to be. Um, You know, some of his shots and his releases aren't as smooth and quick as they were five years ago, but his decision-making is so sharp. He understands how to use an up fake. Um, One thing I think he's really done well throughout the entire playoffs is handle pressure. I may or may not have a video on this coming up. It's something that I've been looking at, how he handles pressure differently and a lot of lateral movement with that very tight handle to keep his dribble alive. And then what that does for the Golden State offense specifically, where it's like, hey, I've strung out two defenders because they're hedging or trapping. And now I swing it to Draymond or I swing it to my man Looney. And now we've got four on three downhill with short roll action. And I've pulled two defenders 25 or 30 feet from the paint or Sometimes he keeps it alive and then he turns the corner and then you bring a third defender into the play and then he makes a good pass. Again, another good decision. This might be his best passing season. So yeah, it's, it's what's fascinating to me is again, maybe because this isn't the typical way it's looked, it doesn't really get registered from people as being the same sort of, oh, this is a, this is an all time dominant offensive player still doing his thing. Yeah. So because of everything that you just mapped out, I, d- I definitely clearly see Curry as being the best in the conference, uh, at least the best in that series. Luca being number two. Uh, not to swing too much back to the other side, but Ben, I'm I'm really interested. The Larry Bird Trophy, Ben. <laughs> the Larry Bird Trophy. Who would you award this to in the Eastern Conference Finals right now? Al Horford. <laughs> I are you being serious? Would you actually give it to Al Horford? Why wouldn't I give it to Al Horford? Now, I'm just interested. Why Why would you pick Al Horford, Ben? Because, I mean, I know the hands thing. Like, Al Horford's hands have been magical. Like, he's been locking up Bam. He's doing a really good job of stripping him, making life a little bit, you know, not comfortable for him. But do you think it's it, it that and everything else he does proves more valuable than even Tatum with diminished efficiency? Well, I don't think it's been... Tatum's best defensive series some of that or most of that is probably the way the heat attack um so I don't think he's had the same defensive value that he's had in the first two series the defensive value in the first two series from Tatum was pretty significant to me um his shooting and scoring numbers are down as well 24 points per 75 on just about average I mean plus one percent efficiency we talked about some of his playmaking there's some struggles there and then he's kind of had some successes in the last few games but I think we agree that he's probably 
a stronger candidate amongst the stars or the or the offensive creators than someone like Jalen Brown has had kind of a better shooting series. Do we agree on that? Yeah, 100%. Okay, so then that leaves, you're kind of left, you're not taking anyone off the bench, and you're left with other candidates to challenge him, um, Smart, Rob Williams, and Horford. Rob Williams has only played 94 minutes in the series so far. Smart's missed two games. He's played 101 minutes. Um, I think Smart's actually been quite good when he's played but Al Horford nearly 150 minutes in the series 14 points per 75 on plus 21 percent true shooting so you know he's in the 70s he's been super super efficient shooting over 40 percent from downtown Um, really good decision making and passing just that extra lubrication that the offense needed that they didn't have when he missed his game his defense has been fantastic the Boston is plus 20 with him on the court in the series. They're being outscored when he goes to the bench. I just think eye test indicators, big time defense in the series. The offensive one is the one that gives me pause, but I don't know. Like let's, let's take a step back. If we made an all playoffs team right now, we don't, we don't have access to the NBA finals yet, but we've got basically three rounds of the playoffs. Um, is Al Horford going to make one of your, all NBA playoff teams because I think you'd probably make one of mine. My is that with three teams? Do yeah, I have fifteen? Well, players? I mean, do you do you? Sure, you can do three teams, but at what point do you say I've run out of players to put over Al Horford, and how fast is that? Wow, that's an excellent question. I don't know if you'd make my first team. Like right now, you're talking about Al Horford, and you make a really compelling case. But just like the way that Tatum stirs the drink, like I keep going back to the passing value that I think he adds. And I think Horford's a great secondary passer, but he's definitely not the kind of guy that's going to like, I think, keep the offense afloat unless he's surrounded by other offensive talent. Whereas I think Tatum is able to do that a little bit more in this series. So I think even with the diminished efficiency, even with the a little bit of a lackluster defense, it's really hard for me to not pick Tatum for this series. So I think on that team overall, like Tatum would be above him. I don't want to list off everyone like Giannis and bead. Um, what about Ben? What would you say about Bam? Would you put Bam over Horford in this team for the playoffs? I don't think, well, certainly not in this series. We agree. No, no, right. No, no. I'm not sure that you could put Bam over Horford for the playoffs. Um, Horford's been really, really good. Oh, I know. For all three series. And I think sometimes it can be, especially for a player that used to have it and doesn't have it anymore, or, you know, you're missing the regular season metrics and all that stuff. But if you just look at his playoff numbers, um, I think offensively, he's shooting 48%, right? Something like that from three. He's, He's... got connective tissue passing. He's got little extra stuff with offensive rebounding, decision-making, makes all the small plays. I think he's been a positive on offense in the playoffs on a, a sort of, we're talking high-level championship stuff here, right? You're a game away from the NBA Finals. And then on defense, how many players have been better defensively in the NBA playoffs than Al Horford? And how valuable is that? That's a great question. I, I legitimately don't know the answer to that. Because he has been so good, and it's like shocking how good he has been. Yeah, exactly. I think I think you still have your Draymond, uh, Giannis, those kinds of players, but there just aren't that many. I mean, Al, Al Horford playing like 
super spacer, positive offense. I think someone in last night's game mentioned it, right? It's like, it might have been Mark Jackson. This is amazing. I'm, I'm agreeing with something Mark Jackson said. <laughs> um, it might, he, he, I think he was saying like, it's, it's Draymond-esque, where you have a guy who is facilitating offense, in this case, spacing the floor, making threes, making important decisions, and then playing, I wouldn't call it like defensive player of the year level defense, but like whatever a, va- whatever a rung below that is, I think that's what we're talking about. So I'm, I'm still on this, what what team I'd put them on. So are we counting players that, <laughs> that were knocked out the first round, Ben? Uh, who, are, who are you thinking of? Jokic. Oh, yeah. So I think that yeah. sort of thing gets really tough because then you, you, you have Jokic, you have Embiid over him, you have Giannis over him, uh, you have Tatum over him. So there's four. So I don't think he could be above the third team. Uh, Draymond, like Draymond. Wow. Wow. You'd put Embiid over him? Wow. You wouldn't? Wow. Um, you wouldn't. Are we just are we just like pretending that Embiid played differently than he did and saying you were healthy? I don't I don't understand it. So I think it's really hard, man. Dude, this is this is dangerous rabbit hole territory right now, Ben. This is dangerous rabbit hole. <laughs> we're late territory. in the episode, Cody. You got you got to get it in. So, man, it's so hard, especially on the spot to decide who was better when they have such drastically different roles. And I think in these kinds of conversations, especially once again, trying to do this on the fly, like people, I'm not thinking about this. I'm thinking with you also think with me (laughs) on the fly. I feel like I'm going to lean towards the player that has a lot more responsibilities, so to speak, than a player that doesn't necessarily and is fitting more as like a portable cog in a machine that is stronger. And if you play like the swapping card, like what happens if you trade Joel Embiid and Al Horford in these playoffs? Like, I feel like the Celtics would be quite a bit better if, maybe not quite a bit, I think they would be better if they had Embiid instead of Horford. And the the 76ers would have been considerably worse with Horford as opposed to Embiid. Well, I I don't think that's the question. I don't think that's, uh, I don't, I typically don't like that thought experiment in general, but certainly not for who's played better in the playoffs. Why not? Um, why don't I like that thought experiment? Yeah. Because teams are built around players and players' skill sets. And the role, um, you would never just swap out Michael Jordan for Akeem Olajuwon. The closest possible thing you could have is if you had a Michael Jordan-level center. And even then, you would have to completely restructure how you built the offense and defense around that player and the plays you literally ran for that player and where they stood on the court. And the same thing for Jordan. If you If you put Hakeem on the Bulls, the closest thing you could have is like some Hakeem type shooting guard. I don't know. It just, it breaks down immediately for me. Does that make sense? So that that's true. But in this case, like they play basically the same position. But so- they don't play alike at all. They don't like one of the key things with Horford in this postseason has been how versatile he is defensively. One of the key things with Horford is his mind. One of the key things with Horford is he is so good at playing next to players that are better than him on offense. So I, I think the cru- let's go back to what I think the crux of your point is. And, and you've taken us in the rabbit hole and we'll, we'll entertain it for a few more minutes before we end the show. Cause I think it's, a, I think it's worthwhile to discuss this. If you are going to be a primary player, I mentioned the Larry Bird thing. We talked about Curry and creating offense upstream, Luka Doncic. If you're going to be a primary player, whether it's in a short series, Cody, or throughout a season, if you take on a bigger role and you have a bigger load, 
then that comes with bigger error bars. That comes with bigger responsibility. So as you start to fade in your role, as you make poor decisions, as your shooting goes in the tank, as your playmaking struggles, whatever it may be, then it's like, okay, um, I don't know why Dino, Ro- Dino Raja just popped in my head. Um, most people probably don't even know who Dino Raja is. But who's Cody, who's a, who's a player right now who's a leading scorer on a really like a lot deep lottery team that we can think of um wow i've pushed a lot of those teams out of my head <laughs> i can't think of one so i'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with, uh he may be a little too good for the to like really illuminate the thought experiment but the but the point is poor teams have primary guys um uh, let me go more modern what about marcus pfizer on the bulls many years ago no, I can someone. I I feel like I need someone can to give someone, me like how many modern are, players are listening in on this. Yeah, man. we need we need someone to give us a modern player. Look, you got Dino Raja, okay? He's your leading scorer. He averages twenty points a game. You can't then just take him and say, well, because he's playing a more primary role, I'm gonna have Dino Raja over Al Horford because if you put Al Horford on the team, Al Horford wouldn't average. 20 points a game or whatever it is like the issue is if you are playing in that role and you don't do it well how is that how is that any helpful how is that good just because you're playing that role but you're you're using an example of a player that's on a deep uh lottery team as opposed to a player that was the main primary on a team that made the second round of the playoffs it's a it's irrelevant in this case that he made the second round he could be in the nba finals if he goes out there and he takes 40 shots and he misses all of them he's done more harm to his team than danny greenwood ever that's even even if you think it's the case that this is a player that's that needs to take on that sort of load and if given that sort of load other players wouldn't be able to do it like relatively to other players that would be given that load like he's maybe better than anyone else. I feel like you're making an argument that because we saw Embiid in the regular season and we know what he is, then it doesn't matter that he was injured and didn't play well in the playoffs because we know what he is. So therefore he can't not be the most, the best player or the most valuable player on the 76ers. I think I'm just making the argument that they play such a dramatic different roles that I'm having a different difficult time parsing their specific values on what they gave to their playoff teams and I would honestly think I would need to sit down and think this out more I don't 100% like off the top of my head yeah I'd have him beat over Horford uh but if I sat down and thought it out maybe I'd have Horford over it but uh again like if we had definitions for some of these awards maybe we would have a well these aren't awards I don't I don't care about the awards I think what matters here and we'll have to we'll have to put a pin in this and come back to it because it is a discussion that I've been trying to have for many years. Evaluating players in small samples seems to be a very, very, very slippery thing for people. Um, just even the parameter, as you can see by our conversation, just even the terms of the of the way we think about it is is sort of very fuzzy. So we'll we'll have to come back to this um, at some point in the future. Any other, now that we've gone down the rabbit hole, anything else that I needed to hit today that I haven't before we get out of here? No. So Horford, Horford, you're picking the Eastern Conference. Well, I think just for the Eastern Conference finals, I think right now, yeah, I, if that is my inclination, okay. Al Horford. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm still going to lean Jason Tatum, but I'll let you okay. take Horford. All right. Well, um, Cody's enchiladas are ready. If you want to, if you want to support this show, head on over to patreoncom thinkingbasketball That's where you can find that 
aforementioned video on Rob Williams through the first four games of the Eastern Finals. Um, we also have a daily stats leaderboard that updates regularly that we've cited in this episode. That's where those stats are from. Uh, a Patreon, uh, excuse me, a Discord community. I can't get my app straight and a ton more. Thanks as always for listening all the way to the end of this one. Hope you're enjoying the playoffs and that wherever you are, you are having a great day.